Yep. So did, well, did you see the uh, the Lost South Park episode? I did, and that wasn't the Meghan Markle going on the uh, worldwide privacy tour. Was that it? was a, that was a couple of episodes ago. So oh, okay, South Park has been on fire for the last. Yeah, I've heard. Months. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get caught up. I'm, I'm excited to tune, tune into what they got going on. Yeah. So the Harry and Meghan episode is hilarious. That's probably the best yeah. of the ones. But the yeah. last episode that they released a couple of days ago is all about ChatGPT. Okay. Uh, and Trey Parker wrote the episode with ChatGPT. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's it's a pretty funny episode. So they they show all the kids at the elementary school. They start all the boys start using ChatGPT to respond to their yeah. girlfriend's text messages. Oh, okay. So all the girls are texting them like long text messages, and the guys are just responding with thumbs up emojis as guys do. Yeah. Uh, so some of the guys start using ChatGPT and the women just completely fall for them because they're they're giving them these like long poetic responses to their messages. Oh, amazing. And then um Cartman and some of the other kids start using it to cheat on tests. So they write oh, yeah. space for it. Um and all this is going on in in uh, in real life. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And Mr. Garrison, the teacher, he finds out that they're all using ChatGPT to write their essays. But instead of getting on the kids about it, he just starts using ChatGPT to grade their essays, which was becoming harder <laughs> for him. And, yeah. then, and then the principal of the school brings in a shaman to detect the AI. And the shaman, oh, wow. <laughs> the shaman has a falcon on his shoulder that flies around and finds people that have used ChatGPT. And it turns out that it's everyone. So everything just descends into chaos at the end. Everyone was using ChatGPT for everything. Um, and yeah. then Stan, he's like in chaos and wants to fix the situation. So he uses ChatGPT to generate a happy ending to the story. And then oh, wow. acts that out. So the whole end of the story was written by ChatGPT. Um, but it, wow. was, it was a pretty cool episode. That's like super meta and interesting. Wow, that's... Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. Um, yeah, it sounds fascinating, especially the uh, the move to bring in the shaman, because it seems like okay, like the most human thing is to go into the world of the unconscious and pure imagination yeah. and pure creativity, whereas the most inhuman thing is to rationally systematize all the past. You know, so there's really nothing creative about chat GPT at all. It's just, mm. it's just a, um, it's an algorithm of likelihood based on past data. Whereas the shaman goes into a place that could be completely novel, mm. like seeing things, seeing things that have never existed before in the realm of pure imagination. Yeah. So that's an interesting juxtaposition. It's an interesting move that they that they went there uh, with the shaman, and I wonder if that's a bit of a, a harbinger for where humanity is going. And and this is kind of dovetailing with uh, what we were talking about before, or when I texted you. I think that the rise of uh, AI's uh, large language models is bad for implementers but great for visionaries hmm. um, because the value is going to be in the realm of what hasn't been uh, proposed yet. And the people that synthesize what's already been proposed, like 
you know, lawyers and uh, accountants, um, you know, those type of people, like they're really just synthesizing the known, whereas the visionaries are bringing novelty into uh, into the current reality. So, so it's interesting, yeah, that they kind of went down the same road with this uh, idea of bringing in a shaman. Because a shaman, I think, is, you know, a shaman and an artist are fundamentally the same thing, I believe. Yep. Yep. The shamans are the yeah, ones. What's your read on that? Yeah, shamans are the one who go out into the unconscious, into the unknown, and then bring something back of value. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's the same archetype. And if you like, so Elon Musk came out and he said that ChatGPT's memory is the internet. Like, oh yeah, you, that's brilliant. And yeah, that's think, brilliant. If you think about that's it, genius. like our extremely yeah. limited memory um, and over the last 30, 40 years, we've been piling the internet with information about our conscious understanding of things but it's also yeah there's a ton of unconscious information there so i think of the internet as kind of our a giant database of about our unconscious psyche so if you think about right. it, chat gpt is now and it's a chat gpt is like a large language model it's been trained on hundreds of billions of words it's the it, it's based on a neural net that that's based on the way that our human brain works um, yeah. So it's the largest neural net ever of human language. Um, and it's trained on a huge swath of information about our unconscious behavior. So that's what's terrifying right. to me because, because it's ultimately a pattern recognition algorithm. It's going to find patterns between data. And if you think about oh, what's it, what's the terrifying, what's the terrifying part? I mean, isn't it just a, re, isn't it just a mirror? Well, it, you know, it, is the terrifying yeah. part like seeing who it is that we really truly are? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I, I think you nailed it. It's a mirror. It's a mirror yeah. of our conscious and unconscious. Um, so what it's going to do is reveal patterns that we are unconscious of now. So it's going to release all of this energy from the collective unconscious. And, and that's what I, because if you think AI is going to detect patterns in data, if we're giving it data about our unconscious psyche, which is just in the internet, then isn't it going to find the archetypes? Because I like you would think that like from like, think about it from a Jungian perspective. So yeah, won't it find the shadow as an archetype or the anima or the animus or the self? Um, I just feel like that. Yeah, that's- I, I hear I hear what you I hear what you're saying, but then, but uh, my mind goes to like the ancient Egyptians, right, and the archetypal patterns that were set in stone, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Like all these things about uh, these ideas about archetypal patterns being found in a way, it's like, I understand that because it's not so much that they're being found because they're the most, they're the most obvious parts of our shared human experience because they're like the water that we're swimming in. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the difference is now that people are giving a sense of authority to chat GPT because it's so functional. Yes. And so it's, it's more about the, the mechanism of this tool, bringing the invisible into the visible space and then, and then mechanizing it to as a tool to serve a function that's ultimately beneficial and pragmatic. 
Yeah. So I think the difference between the the unconscious or the the archetypal patterns that are recognized in say ancient Egypt, they're just not functional because you can't do anything with it really. Although yeah. you can, I mean, you look yeah. at the Egyptian Book of the Dead, yeah. and you're like, this is one of the most comprehensive, useful guides for living yep. that exists. You know, you have like the Tao Te Ching, the Bible, um, the Vedas, which uh, bookmark this. The, the Vedas um, have this idea about the, Akash, the Akashic, Akashic records. Have you heard of this? No. So it's like, it's like the collective total of all conscious experience from all human beings is recorded in this giant like library of existence. And it's kind of like a large language model for the soul. Hmm. Um, so we should talk about, we should talk about that because that uh, connects with this like shaman, shaman idea. But I think what people are finding so useful about chat GPT is that, it serves a function. It's very useful. Yes. And people yeah. are able to apply it to normal everyday issues that come with trying to do your job or run a business. And you look at the Egyptian Book of the Dead and you can extract the knowledge out of, out of that text and be able to live a very fulfilling life but people don't do it. And in the same way, it's yeah. like people know that if you want to be happy, you shouldn't be taking SSRIs, you should be working out, but people just don't do it. Whereas like chat GPT makes like the, the threshold of usefulness so easy that you don't have to do something difficult like working out to be able to get the, the benefit from it. Yep. So I think that that's what I think that that's what's going on right right now because it's not a matter. So I would disagree with you a little bit in saying that it's ChatGPT or these uh, AI tools that are trained on large language models. They aren't necessarily finding something that hasn't already been discovered or isn't right there out in the open. Yeah. It has to do with the 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 usefulness of it. Yeah. So do you, do you want to address that? Definitely. Yeah. I, I think that the reason that it's been so widely adopted is that it, like you said, it's pragmatically useful for day-to-day -day work. Um, yeah. So I've never, ever seen a technology be adopted this fast ever. Um, I know it's unbelievable. Like, I've, I've been working. Everybody's in... talking. I mean, we're talking about it. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Like South Park's talking about it. I mean, I've yeah. been, I've been in the technology industry for 15 years. I've, for the last 10 years, I've seen tons of AI technology up close. And even like seven, eight years ago, I was a little terrified of what I was seeing. But ChatGPT is far, far more advanced than I expected AI to be now. And it only took them five days to get a million users. So yeah, that's unbelievable. That, I think like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, like it took them like a year, about a year, two years to get a million users. It took ChatGPT five days. Um, so people are finding it extremely useful across every domain that you can imagine. Like I'm not, I'm not seeing like specific domains where it's useful. It seems to be useful in every single domain. I mean, I'm using it in my business already. Um, what I'm interesting, interested in is it doesn't seem like people have made this leap yet, but we we've gotten to the point where chat GPT is passing like medical exams, bar exams, and it's able to write code 
Yes. Sometimes really, really well, sometimes perfectly. Yes. But we haven't taken the next step with pairing it with 3D printing technologies. So what, like, what, you know, what if we had this AI say, okay, build a, um, build a, uh, an auger, right? Like a boring machine to go and analyze extracting a mineral resource and then take this mineral resource and then build a simple tool. And then, and then, you know, eventually being able to, or, or say just, um, be able to find an aggregate to put into a 3d printing machine and then build a tool that's useful. Um, so you're making the leap from something that's, you know, software to hardware, you know, some, yeah. something that you're actually building something physical in the world. Now imagine it like up in space. Hmm. Now imagine it like going to a meteorite that's, you know, and then you're having it harvest nickel. And then with the nickel, you can, you know, create uh, the whole of a spaceship that then other people can go in and fill out with more complicated electronics. I mean, we are not far away from, you know, machines that can harvest the energy of the sun, build spaceships from material collected in the solar system, and be able to create these uh, infrastructure, you know, extraterrestrial infrastructure for human beings to start living off planet and have a whole yeah. housing structure for uh, humanity 2.0. Because once humanity starts adapting to zero Gs, there's going to be this new species that's not going to be able to come back to Earth. Because we, we already know this about, you know, astronauts' long-term uh, existence on the, uh, the space stations, the ISS. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're just going to hit this point where there's going to be a split in between the two types of human beings. And I think that we're seeing the the foreshocks, the, you know, whatever the opposite of an aftershock is, yeah. um, of this new humanity getting born. And I think yeah. ChatGPT, um, and I even think like this fucking mask wearing, like I think that there's this higher order of consciousness that's getting us ready for like exoskeleton or exosuits to be able to survive in space. And it's like training us to start breathing through an apparatus. I mean, I know that that's super far out, but you know, the way that evolution works is you, you have to like prep the animal for this new environment. And there's some sort yeah. of like higher order intelligence that's going on. And so you see this higher order intelligence that's like reaching into our current state right now and saying, these are the next steps for you to get off planet because ultimately the cosmos is in the service of life. Like the highest, the highest energy is life, the immortality of life, the eternal nature of life. And, and um, you know, everything is in the service of life. And so it's like this evolutionary conveyor belt is getting us ready to go off planet. And now we're seeing the tools and mechanisms to be able to shuttle us into this new reality. And yeah. I think that that's what chat GPT is. And then when we couple it with 3d printing, I mean, it's like, see you later. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where are we going?
that's the thing is you hear me on that one yeah absolutely like i I agree with you and i think that ai is going to fundamentally change us from an evolutionary perspective and i can feel it when i use it like the the way that i'm getting responses from it and the types of responses that i'm getting it's doing something to my brain like it's my brain is reimagining how to search for and learn information um, so I think it's going to have a massive impact on us. And and ChatGPT right now is just text responses and only text in a limited domain. But it's, yeah. it's about to be connected with video production, um, yeah. with robots. Um, like So um, Microsoft is releasing their new Bing search engine next week. Yeah. And it's completely built on GPT-4, the next version of GPT. Right. And it's going to have the ability. And is that updating? Because right now the 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 large language model stops at September 2021. Is that going to bring it more into the current uh, current realm of information? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's going to be an update. I don't know how recent it's going to be, but it's going to get to a point in the next couple of versions where it's just up to date nearly all the time. Um, but the new version can generate video and images at the same time. Oh my God. I know it's unbelievable. So you could like feed it images of your art and ask it to ask questions about it. I know. I know. I know. I've been thinking about it. It's, it's kind of terrifying, but um, at the same time, it's like, because everybody's in the same boat, you know, it's not like this AI things like attacking me or focused on me. It's just, it's on everybody. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I have I have confidence that I'll be able to figure out this new terrain and excel at it. Um how but you, yeah, it's it's yeah. wild. I'm curious, like how do you feel about AI's image generating capabilities? Because there's tons of like amateur artists out there that are complaining or like upset because this AI can produce far better art than they can. And I know you're you're like a top level artist, and I'm well, not saying AI will be able to produce what you produce because you're conscious and you're you're finding patterns in your consciousness and painting them. But how do you feel about it in general? Because it's pretty fucking good. Well, I mean, I've seen the most convincing uh, demonstration of this idea that you're talking about is um, somebody put prompts into an AI image generating. Cool. I forget which one, and they were uh, focusing its its attention on uh, on Alex Gray and do something in the style of Alex Gray. And because Alex Gray's work is like so specific, it's like such a iconic uh, representation of psychedelic art mm. that it spit out some stuff where you're just like, wow. Like that's really, that's really on point. Yeah. Um, but I think where the value is is going to be in the hand, the human hand, in the brush strokes. It's going to be in the people. Like one of the things I'm convinced that one of the reasons why people love Van Gogh so much. Um, first of all, the story is very Christ-like and archetypal. But the reason why people love Van Gogh so much is because we have a record of his letters. Hmm. So we got to be able to see not only um, the paintings themselves, but the artist's internal struggle of, you know, the the triumphs and despair of creating a body of work. 
in the evolution of that consciousness through that body of work. But the fact that we have the letters gives you an intimate connection to the artists themselves. Mm. And so I think with the future of art and the way that we have begun communicating each other with each other in video and in the same thing that we're same way that we're doing it now, I think that the value of art going forward is not only in the actual artifact of the art, but the documentation of that. And so being able to see the artist paint, to be able to get behind the scenes, to hear the story. And then when you get the actual artifact, you can see the humanity in the hand. You can see the brushstrokes or you can see the drawing. You can see, you know, that that is what's going to make art continue to hold value because of its uniqueness and because of its scarcity. Like one of the reasons why you can get, you can, you know, if you buy a Van Gogh painting, it could cost you as much of as an Island in the, in the Caribbean somewhere, you know, it could be, you know, Van Gogh's paintings routinely go for over a hundred million a pop. It's because there's only one, you know, and it's a no, it's not, it, and it's been, uh, it, it's been firmly grounded as a real artifact in history. You know, it's like all these museums know about it. The art history books have written about it. Like Van Gogh's life is a known, uh, a known thing. And so it's the significance of the, the artifact as human. And in a way you could think mm. of, the the art itself like my body of work we talked about this a little while ago but my body of work all the canvases and drawings and pieces of art that i've ever done they're they they are my body hmm. you know my consciousness lives in those artifacts in the same way that my consciousness lives in my body and so the the value of my work going forward even after i die is people will be able to have a bit of my consciousness in the artifact even when i'm no longer here and that realm of authenticity and the just the reality of my humanity or anybody's humanity inside of the artwork is a quality that chat gpt and the ai models will never be able to get yeah but the issue will be forgeries, deep fakes, all of that stuff. So the significance will be, again, documentation. So many people being able to verify that it's a real work, you know, like maybe people coming to a show or people writing articles or whatever, it's going to be the same issue that everybody's dealing with, that the more people, the more real humans that can witness it and verify that it's real and you can see with your own eyes the, the humanity behind it, that value is going to go through the roof yeah. and the scarcity of it. The one, the one of a kind actual objects, artifacts are going to be tremendously valuable, especially when you have so many representations all around. And then you have the one true object. Whoever owns the one true object has all the power. You know, it's like the sort, it's like the, it's like the the mother essence that every that it gives birth to all these other children, but you have like the one source material, and that's 
that's why I feel relatively confident that going forward, um, it's just going to be better because the more people are able to access art and develop their own sense of aesthetics, um, will be better for art in general. Um, and so then the people that are doing really high level art and creating authentic work will benefit from the shared interest in art in general, in the same way that people are way more interested in video now than they ever have been before and even making video. So now, so now I think like filmmaking is even more value valuable when you see the, when you see it done on a really high level, because people they're like, Oh, that was cool. The way they did that shot. Or now I appreciate cinematography or now I understand the value of a director of, uh, photography um you know it it brings people more in it makes people more interested in math interested in mastery because now they can dabble in it a little bit on the lower levels yeah so this is kind of a roundabout way of saying it but I, but i but i think that it ultimately it's going to be good for art yeah i agree yeah and i think for you does that mean like because if you just create the artifact of a painting and don't share anything about your creation of it, like from that the sense of Van Gogh that you described earlier. Are people going to think that your art is real or or care about the value? Because it sounds like because that an AI that produces images will be fantastic at producing abstract images similar to your art. But you said like yeah. the, the difference is that you can share like your struggle as you're going through creating that art. So. Do you think you've got to kind of like create content of you creating the art, yeah. like coupled with it in some way? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not stoked about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know, it's been something, as you know, that I've actively avoided for 20 years because my process of engaging with my own work is to use my artistic process as a tool to explore aspects of my inner experience that I wouldn't be able to explore if I wasn't using this tool. And having other people in the mix makes it distracting because now I have to pay attention to them. And, you know, now, you know, their opinions of like, oh, I really like that, you know, which I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Or, oh, I don't like that. And I'm, oh. and I'm like, well, that's, it's part of my inner experience, but I'm not, in the past, like I haven't been strong enough to be able to take on that extra stimuli, that extra input. And so for like two decades, I was just trying to master my own experience of myself through my art. And then now, because I've gotten to this place, I know that the next chapter in my life is to start being more public and start sharing more things with the world. I mean, when you look at Van Gogh, Van Gogh, like nobody cared about Van Gogh when he was alive. It was only posthumously that his letters became like legendary because, you know, then he became like a, uh, a myth, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, an art Christ mythological figure, you know, it's like the whole reason why we have this idea, like, you know, you only get famous when you're dead. Hmm. That's, that's only Van Gogh. You know, people think like, oh, that's just the way art is. It's like, no, 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 no. That's only Van Gogh. It's just, it just happens to be blown up to such a huge degree that we think it's archetypal for the entire artistic experience. But for as far as myself goes, 
you know, like I have, I have a, a really, I like, I don't like social media because I don't think that the, the frame that I set myself in, in social media, it, 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 it so muddies the water and taints, taints the well that I can't get the truth, the feel, the feeling that I have with the work, which is what's being conveyed to the audience gets warped when it goes through Instagram, you know, like, and so I just, I can't, like, if it was just an open platform, like my website is fine. You know, you go to my website, you look at my work and I'm like, okay, that feels good. But then when I'm like put in the feed of like scrolling with a bunch of like advertisements that I, you know, advertisements and pictures of, you know, dogs and, you know, chicks without bras on and, and all this like crap that goes into, you know, it's like being in a show, like a salon style show where you have, you know, 20 different pieces of art on the wall. I'm one little piece over here. And then everything else is also over here that doesn't have anything to do with my work. And so the attention is, is convoluted inside of this like soup of nonsense that it's just, it's just incoherent. And, and then also because of the way that social media is constructed, like it gives me a bad feeling. And so it's really hard for me to engage with that. And, and then I haven't gotten to the point now where I'm trying to, trying to get, uh, trying to get to the level where I'm publishing more and actually putting out physical material more. And, and, and I think like once I can establish more sovereignty in my own ability to create material and send it out to people, then I'll be more comfortable being more public yeah. because I'll have more control over it. But right now, with the social media tools that I've experienced before, I, it just, it's the wrong feeling for me. So I haven't really developed that part, but I do understand that in order to get to the next level of what my vision is demanding of me, that I do have to get more public. And so in that way, um, yes, I do feel like to your point, a necessary part of the process is, getting out of my studio, getting out of my singular kind of meditative state that I get into with my art and present it to the world on a stage. And, and I mean, honestly, that's part of what appeals to me about doing what we're doing right now Yeah, um, is learning the skills to become more articulate, get my ideas out, uh, try to stop rambling as much. <laughs> and then, you know, just learn how to be able to speak in front of an audience while you're thinking about you know, like I know it's you and I talking, but I'm aware that there's the potential potential of a larger audience that's listening. And so getting more used to that is is the necessary part of the necessary next steps of opening up uh, a new chapter, you know, act yeah. two in my uh, career. And I think a lot of people would get benefit from seeing that, like seeing behind the scenes, Nathan struggling with the art and actually working on the art pieces. Because if you think about it, like tools like ChatGPT, AI tools, they can generate artifacts very quickly. But yeah. it's a black box in terms of like how it came up with it. And it and it and because it's not conscious, it didn't struggle with it. So I, I almost yeah. feel like the artifact isn't as important 
it is important, but it's it's almost like the process of creating it and capturing that is just as important as the artifact because the AI can create tons of artifacts. Yeah, and and it's it, it still has that same pattern, but it's but there's not a single point of focus because it's it's like the uh, the archetypal pattern of creation as seen through the lens of the whole species rather than one individual person. Yeah. And um and I mean the difficult thing for me right now is just I'm already overwhelmed with my life and I can't put one more I, I don't have the space in my life to put one more thing on there. And you know, but I am building out, you know, I, I have you know, I just hired somebody new that looks like they're going to be able to help me a lot. So uh, I, I am working on it. And um, I do see that it's important. And, you know, I got, I got 40 more years, you know, I'm 46 right now, probably make it to 86. You know, my career is about 22 years. So let's just say it's 20. So I got two more 20 year careers ahead of me. Van Gogh did everything that he did from 27 to 37. So if I can manage to just get a solid 10 years in, then, uh, you know, it's, it's good. You know, I'm reading that bio biography of a uh, Da Vinci right now. Hmm. And Da Vinci's, you know, widely regarded as the most intelligent, valuable artist of all time. That guy didn't do shit. That guy didn't do shit. <laughs> he, he had for, for the, for the amount of years that he had, he has 15 paintings total, 15 total. And a handful of them aren't even completed. Um, the the amount of actual artifacts that he built, almost nothing. Hmm. But he, we have his sketchbooks, yes. and his sketchbooks are like seven thousand pages. And his sketchbooks, I mean, they aren't. I mean, people are like, "This is." <laughs> I mean, they're they're real sloppy. I mean, they're, 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 they're amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Da Vinci's sketchbooks are amazing, but they're just fucking notes. They're not like, so it's amazing that this guy, I mean, he, and he is amazing. Like you, to understand his mind and what it was that he was doing in that time in history and his, his insatiable curiosity and how it is, but it's astounding to me that this is the guy uh, when he literally, you know, you have Michelangelo, you have Raphael, you know, I mean, these are people that pumped it out. I mean, yeah. unbelievably vast bodies of work that are masterful. I mean, st like stuff that you look at, you can't, you can't even look at it. Cause for me, it'll like, it'll just make me like break down in tears. Like it's, yeah. I mean, Da Vinci's like that too, to honestly, yeah. like the, but but so when you want to talk about like production and trying to put your put yourself in this body of work, like I'm always trying to think of the frame that I fit into and trying to set benchmarks based on other known entities. And, you know, we we understand how artists work and what their production is and how fast they work and what it. And so, you know, you again, you look at Van Gogh, 10 years, 27 to 37, did everything. I mean, that motherfucker pumped it out. I mean, that, that was unfathomable how much work he did and how high quality it is and then you put da vinci like almost nothing 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's wild. You know, people don't even think about it, but yeah. it's like it's it's wild. But so, this stuff is amazing. Don't get me wrong. But so yeah, and that's I want to drill down on that. So given that Da Vinci didn't create many paintings, but no. they are so extremely famous. What yeah. is it about his art that is so like revolutionary or interesting? Because I remember you shared. I mean, a lot of a story it. with me. You went to Europe. Yeah. You went to yeah, Europe. Yeah. You saw a Da Vinci uh, gallery, yeah. museum, and you saw his yeah. Annunciation painting. Yeah, like, yeah tell, yeah, tell yeah, me yeah. about that experience and like, what do you think it is that you that you saw? In uh, that? Short answer is I don't know. Um, if I tell this story, it's gonna be real rough for me. Um, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so um, I mean, even though you, you know, you might get the impression that I mean, I love Da Vinci. I mean, this guy, but I get a little self conscious about it because I'm like, I don't, I don't know, man. It's just it hits me in the, it hits me in a lot of different places. Like, you know, it, it's supposedly said that Da Vinci's last words were. Um, something I'm going to butcher this, and and the, it's probably not true. But he says uh, his last words supposedly were, um, "I have offended God and mankind, for my work was not what it was supposed to be, or not up to the standard it was supposed to be." And I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it, I mean it's just ridiculous. But um, but I went to Florence one time. A friend of mine. Uh, I went to go see the uh, Marina Abramovic um, retrospective in Florence a few years ago. And uh, there's a, the National Gallery there is called the Uffizi. And it's got a lot of the great Renaissance painting. Like, it's basically an art history book. It's got, you know, a lot of the, like, the greatest hits of, uh, of Renaissance art. And um, I didn't really want, I was uh with my friend and and i wanted to go but then we didn't have the foresight to get tickets and then it was this big old fiasco and the main reason why i wanted to go is i wanted to see the drawing because they have this really amazing because i think sketches are are really uh interesting get out of here um and so anyways i was convinced to go and after a couple of hours waiting in line we actually went in there and i mean it was amazing and uh so we're going around and we're looking at all this stuff and it's kind of like laid out chronologically so you see how the the art over time you know kind of evolves as like human consciousness is evolving yeah and you finally get into like the mid 1400s where you're hitting like the 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 glory moments of you know the renaissance and you start going into these different galleries and we go into this gallery and i see this um i see uh this room of da vinci's and um you know, there's this room of like, there's not that many, there's only like three in there. And, um, you know, and everybody's huddled around this, uh, this one piece and it, it's pretty big. It's like um, maybe like two and a half feet by five feet. Yeah. It's a good size painting and it's kind of long and uh, go in there and everybody's like looking at it and, um, and it's the, uh, the Annunciation. So it's basically when the angel Gabriel um tells Mary that even though she's a virgin, she's got the the son of God in inside of her. Mm. And um, you know, it's these two, you know, that you have the uh the angel kind of 
pointing to Mary and Mary, you know, so it's, it's kind of similar composition as the Sistine Chapel where you have God and yeah. uh, Adam, you know, touching each other there. It's like, there's this force is like pointing at each other. Yeah. And so anyways, so I'm looking at it. There's probably about 15 people around it and I'm looking at it. And the closer I get, the more I'm like the brush strokes on this. I'm like, what am I even looking at? Like, I have never seen a painting like this. I mean, it's totally different than seeing it in a book. And mm. the glazing, um, the brush strokes, the way the handling of like pigment and and the way that the light bounces off of it. And I mean, this is from late 1400s, 1490, 1500, somewhere around there. And I mean, it still shines with a radiant that seems timeless and i'm just like looking at it and i'm going like deep into this thing like looking at the brush strokes looking at the colors and all of a sudden like i start getting a little woozy yeah right and i'm like i'm like whoa this is this is interesting um getting woozy and uh so you know i kind of shake it off or whatever and i'm like looking at i'm like looking at this angel right looking into the eyes of this angel and i'm like getting even more woozy and I think, and I watch it and I'm going like, okay, what is going on here? Mm. And I said, this is interesting. Like, let me watch it. Right. So I, so I turned away from the painting and I'm like, I'm like, okay. And I turned back to the painting and, and I'm getting weak. Like I can feel the energy getting weak in my ankles and my knees. And I'm like, what is doing this? Is this me? Is this the painting? Is this the environment? Have I not had anything to eat? So I kept like playing with it, trying to understand what the mechanism was for this feeling that was basically gonna make me pass out. Like I could feel like it was coming. Like if I just stood there, like it was coming, like I was gonna fucking pass out. And I'm like, and I'm like, okay, there's no way. And so I get like, <laughs> you know, like I squared off against this painting to be able to like look at this thing. And I'm like, there's no way that this painting is making me feel like I'm going to pass out. This is absurd. And I just look at it and I'll tell you what, man, like I just, I could feel, feel myself just getting weak. Hmm. And I started getting wobbly and then I got like really emotional. Hmm. Like there was something in that painting like this like divine force that was it wasn't just the divine force being in that painting inside of mary there was something about it inside of me mm. and it connected into me and it was so painfully beautiful and overwhelming like i had to like leave the room mm. and i had to leave the room and i was I remember getting into the hallway and just there's like people all around him. And, and I was just like, like, what is going on? Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was like a rush of a drug that just came in and overtook me. Yeah. When there was like nothing going on, there's this inanimate object, my experience of an inanimate object. And there was something inside of that, that just broke me. And it broke me with beauty. It broke me with significance. It broke me with like the raw human experience of life. 
And, and so I was like, well, this is wild. And so later, this was such a, such a, I started researching it. I started trying to figure out, I was like, what, what the hell is this? And so, you know, I, I, you know, Google, you know, I just did my, did my thing. And I found out that um, this is a very particular um, site, well-observed psychological um, event that happens to people, particularly in Florence, and it's called a hmm. uh, Stendhal syndrome. And there's this old French uh, novelist in the 1700s named Stendhal. He wrote this book called The Red and the Black. And he was traveling all over Europe and, um, you know, went to Florence and had this experience where he was overwhelmed with the beauty of that place and described all of the symptoms that I had. And then I found out later that at the Uffizi Gallery, they have trained professionals on staff to be able to deal with this. And in fact, in the uh, Florence Hospital, they have a ward of people that get brought in from being overwhelmed by this Stendhal syndrome. Okay. So now, you know, and I just stumbled onto this because I'm exceptionally sensitive to art and kind of divine impulses and um i'm like okay this is an objective phenomenon Hmm. that's like affecting people and affecting you know affecting people in a very real way to the point where they're overwhelmed by this this thing so somehow great works of art are pregnant with consciousness that are radiating out to people in some way that we don't understand at all So it goes back to this idea that part of who it is that you are as an artist, as a being, is pregnant inside of the artifact that you touch with your hands. And, you know, somehow it's like you're impregnating material with consciousness. And apparently, if you're good enough, you can just light this thing up so that to the right person, it's like a laser beam. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so I got extremely interested in that, and when you want to talk about why Da Vinci is Da Vinci, mm. I mean that's on the table. Who who yeah. has done that? Who's done that? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I get the same thing with Van Gogh a little bit, but to a lesser yeah. degree. And so, even though he didn't do that much work, people get that hit with the Mona Lisa. You know, I got it with the Annunciation. So maybe he's got five powerful paintings. You know what? That's enough. Yeah. You know what? You you do one in your entire life. You're like, that's a, that's a worthy life, you know? But the reason why, when I was earlier saying like, you don't do shit, it's, it's me projecting my own self-consciousness that I'm not doing enough in my life. And I'm holding myself up to a standard where it's like, I'm, you know, pushing myself as hard as I can go because I'm, frantically trying to get out a body of work that justifies my existence i guess <laughs> you know and yeah. so yeah i'm pushing that I'm, I'm projecting that onto da vinci but yeah like going back to like chat gpt you know what if chat gpt got to this point where it could 3d print something where it's impregnating an object with consciousness like da vinci did who knows you know yeah. but it's just really fascinating yeah. to me and we don't know what consciousness is at all. Like, we don't know what happens after death. We don't know what happens. You know, we have, we, we have no idea. 
all that I know is my personal experience with this example, with this painting. And then lo and behold, it's happened to a bunch of people before. What is that? Yeah. What is that? I, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. And it reminds me of what Van Gogh said about what he was trying to do with his work. And I think you told me this. Yeah. He wanted to change the way that people saw. Yeah. I don't know mm -hmm. exactly what his quote was, but he wanted to change the yeah, way yeah. people see things. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, yeah, when you are working on a piece of art and like you said, you impregnate it, the material with your consciousness and then someone looks at that, it changes the way that they see. And it seems like with the yeah. Da Vinci painting that you were seeing something about you. Like it wasn't right. just like you were seeing something externally and saying, oh yeah, this is like this story from the Bible and I know something about it now. Like it was pointing into you. Um and back to the chat GPT but, thing. But, but here, yeah. wait, let's, let's stop for a second because this goes back to our fundamental reason for even doing this podcast is who am I? Like, where does the me end and the, and the other begin? But maybe the medium that we're working in is the body of Christ. And so when Da Vinci is specifically talking about the Annunciation, which is singly pointed at the body of Christ, that's what the Annunciation is, there's a spark, a scintilla that's alive that allows us to realize that we're inside of the body of Christ. And so the mm -hmm. thing that I'm getting hit with that I they makes me weak is the the divine nature of God and my divine nature and Da Vinci's divine nature and the art itself's divine nature. And then the whole thing all together has so much energy that it's like my container yeah. of Nathanness can't hold it. And so then the who am I is so yeah. rapidly expanding beyond the bounds of my limited nature that I just lose myself in the awe of God. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm inside of the body of Christ, whatever that is. So do you think an AI that can generate art could make a painting that could have that impact? Because like you said, the artist is impregnating the material with their consciousness. AI is not conscious yet. Like, but could... But it's could, a vessel. Yeah, but could it create a, a work the, of art that could have that impact and help you see in a new way? Because I think in a way it could. Maybe not to the same level, yeah. but it's like, it should be able to. I tend to think that there's a, a realm of consciousness that exists beyond our ability to perceive it that's making itself known through technology itself. And the birth of the transistor, which is a gate that opens and closes through light, is the way that the higher form of consciousness is making itself known to us. You know, like I get into the realm of like near death experiences and how, you know, new scientific technology can keep the body alive longer than previously experienced and then consciousness is able to stretch out into this other realm and then go shoo yeah. and then come back. I think that technology itself is primarily a delivery system for light and light is somehow married to consciousness because we're all born in mm. stars and that there's a higher realm. Uh, this is very much like, uh, I'm forgetting his name, the Gyres, Yeats, Yeats. Yeah, WB. You know how Yeats... Yeah, how Yates is formulating like the this is Sri Aurobindo too. Like there's a downward force of involution and an upward force of evolution. Yeah. And the two are starting to meet each other. And so what I see happening is that the 
the worlds of uh, the eternal nature of consciousness and the temporal nature of consciousness here are becoming merged. Yeah, it's like becoming like Swiss cheese, which you also see like happening in uh, like DMT experiences. Um, possibly like whatever's going on with atom bombs and fission and fusion and like there's just the the realms of this world and that world are becoming merged in a way that we've never seen before and technology is the mechanism that's really going to create a through line from the realms of pure consciousness pure imagination and the physicality of the world um and so it's been on the table for a long time like going all the way back to indigenous cultures where you see like you know synchronicity and kind of archetypal patterns where events and manifestations of phenomena in the physical world whether it's like the sun breaking through the clouds at a certain time or like a hawk showing up at a certain time like we used to live in a world where or in a reality where the inner and the outer world were one like we didn't make a distinction between dream life and waking life and then since plato and then descartes we came up with a uh a philosophical framework that split it into dualism. There's like yes. the internal experience and the external experience. And now it seems like that's kind of closing up again as well, mm-hmm. where everything's just kind of becoming one. And so I think that in that merging into oneness, we also start losing our identity as me as separate. Yes. Like me as an entity is singular and then there's everything outside of me because like in my experience with the enunciation it's like apparently my body is also in the painting with da vinci's body yeah you know because i'm being physically overwhelmed hmm. like i'm losing agency over my own body because da vinci's body inside of this painting is more is affecting me more than my own ability to stop it. Yeah. Because I couldn't stop it. Like I tried. I was like, no, this is not going to have control over me. I'm going to have to, and I couldn't do it. Yeah. And it's, and so all, yeah. Anyways, go ahead. Like you said, it's really only in a lot, like since Descartes, like in the last like 400 or so years that we've had that clear separation between the inside and outside. And that's where the, like the development of science came out of that objective split. But before that, yeah like Carl Jung calls it participation mystique or mystical participation where there is a separation between your inner experience and the outer objects you experience. And every object that you experience is embedded with meaning. So if you like looked up at a statue back then, it had a magical feeling to it. And that's the way that everyone saw the world back then for thousands and Mm -hmm. thousands of years. It's only the last 400 years that we've got objective enough separate the inner and outer world but that isn't necessarily true we are still connected with the world so it seems like you mm-hmm. sunk back into that mystical participation like the art just like pushed you back into that yeah i mean i'm kind of in that realm all the time uh because i want to be in that realm and i value that and i try to stay open to that um 
But you, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, I don't really go through my rational part of my brain to make decisions. I go through the feeling part of my brain, and then I rationally verify whether that's reasonable or not, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, if I have a, you know, if I have, like, a significant ketamine experience, you know, where I'm going into this realm, and then I'm looking at, like, my life, and there's some sort of, like, obstacle or friction point with my life that I'm having a hard time and I'm getting a negative emotion out of it. And then I specifically have a ketamine experience. I know that I'm going to detach from this lens, look through another lens, and it's going to have equal fullness of possibility. But then and it used to be when I first started doing it, I was like, oh, this was all wrong. Like, this was just like my default nature that's not actually true. But now I'm seeing this, this is true. Mm. And, and so then I would try to go into this. And then later on, I realized, oh, neither are true. <laughs> they're, they're, just, they're just possibilities. But it took my rational mind to look at this feeling experience and then detach from both of them to be able to realize like, oh, there's a lot more room to be able to move that even though I'm seeing this reality and then now possibly this reality, there's still I mean, this one and this one and this one and this one. Like Robert Anton Wilson would call it uh, reality tunnels. You can look through different reality tunnels. And yeah. in fact, when you go into these spaces where you're overwhelmed by uh, universes of that are all real, like they're as real as this one is, um, he talks about going into the chapel perilous, right? Where just because, you know, and this is extreme example, like in the mystical tradition, oftentimes it's been reported that people hear voices, right? Well, just because you hear voices doesn't mean it's the truth. It just means yeah. it's a voice. And so you have to stay really rational about it. And so even though you're using the feeling part of your experience to open yourself up to possibilities to keep seeing like, oh, there's something behind this. Oh, there's something behind this. Oh, there's something. And so you, you feel out the full texture of this new realm. You do need to have this rational construct to be like, okay, wait a minute. This didn't quite make sense. You know, you, you, so it's this juxtaposition between using these different perceptual mechanisms in concert together to understand a new territory, but you can't privilege one over the other. It's like, they really yeah. do have to be used. Um, and then where to put the right weight when is something that's very, very difficult. But by default in my normal waking life, I go by my feeling sense of what's going on. And then I do the rational, but I work with a bunch of scientists where they put the rational first. And then they're like, they use feeling, I think to motivate action. Well, I don't know. I don't know how scientists work, but it's like engineering, accounting brain, systematic left brain thinking. Yeah. And so I think, you know, different people put, you know, one mechanism forward or, or the other. But for me, I tend to dwell in the mystical realms of the visionary state by default. And yeah. the world that I walk around is fundamentally symbolic. Yeah, me too. And I've had the similar experiences with psychedelics. Like psychedelics yeah. just open up that magical world. They break that wall of inside and outside and involve you in that mm -hmm. anticipation mystique. But like you said, you can get lost in that. 
Because you can think that oh, what, yeah. you're, what you're receiving is some sort of ultimate truth and then keep going yeah. back to the drug to go to that experience without separating yourself from it and looking at it objectively. Like if you look at the late 60s and early 70s, guys like Ram Das and um, Timothy Leary, like they yeah. were... They went so all into that participation mystique experience that it and it had some deep truth in it, but they got lost. Yeah. The, the whole movement got lost. But you have to give yourself a chance for the neural pathways and psychological structures of the mind and the brain specifically to congeal around a certain thought structure. Because if you keep having revelatory experiences, one on, other, on another, 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 you know, you don't have time to do it. Like, you need to close, you need to stop the openness. Yeah, yeah. Or else you'll get lost. Like, if you, when you look at street people around San Francisco, one of the things is they're just doing like, they're going like over here or like my cat, you know, my, it's just like, immediate stimuli, immediate stimuli, immediate, stim you know, and like you see like street people a lot with like objects all around them that aren't making any sense, but maybe there's a lighter here, lipstick here, magazine over here. It's just because they're so open to newness. Yeah. They're, they're enthralled with the novelty of the next thought, the next experience, which is so entrancing to them, either from like a psychochemical standpoint or just they're just fundamentally built that way. And then the, the drug is catering to that kind of a, I don't know, preference that they, they don't hold on to one idea and then build on one idea. So if you hold on to one idea and you build on it your entire life, you get stuck, hmm. right? So that's what happens with most people is they just start thinking a certain way and then they just are not open to thinking a new way. And so they stay stuck and they stay stuck in these ruts, right? But then people that are visionary, like you and I, we have the tendency to be so open that the thing that we're open to gets replaced by the new open thing, by the new yeah. open thing. And it doesn't ground into something that's solid. And so finding that middle ground is really the challenge. And so then you have to develop a set of tools in your life that that ground you inside of your body, which is generally just like sleeping well, eating well and working out, yep. you know? And then once you have that kind of like your temple, your vessel in place, then you can go into like these radical states of openness, but you have a grounding to come back into. Yep. And so lear learning to be like full on like feet, in the ground while you're yeah uh, you know your visionary state is up here i mean you get stretched yeah. which is painful and exhilarating but you stay grounded and yeah, i realized like one of the things that yeah 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 it is the crucifixion uh, moment but i realized like one of the things that was really causing me a lot of pain in my life is that when i was into when i was drinking a lot for for years and I was fundamentally doing it as like a self-medication escapist strategy. Like I didn't have my feet in the ground. And so I'd have yeah. these visionary experiences and I would just start floating. And then what yeah. happened is that the landing would like just crash landing. So I would launch up 
like wild and be like, you know, just in this amazing divine experience. And then I would crash down to earth in this hell state. And so I was oscillating between like, you know, in the inferno and paradiso, you know, just like just radically going up, just smashing myself up against the ground, you know, again and again and again until finally, you know, I wrung that towel with every last drop and then realized like, oh, there's, this is a bad habit. (laughs) (laughs) like like, oh this doesn't work and then once I got that together I you know I started getting more fit I started losing weight I started getting more grounded and and um and so now my capacity for the visionary experience is something that gets grounded in uh my practice of being in the world and now I can but now now I feel good and it really was about exercise yeah 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 exercise has made a huge huge difference for me and i i had a similar problem with you where i was doing i I first did psychedelics i had huge revelatory experiences of truth so i was like i'm just gonna keep going back to that realm like keep taking Mm -hmm. more psychedelics and stay in that realm but it's kind of it reminds me of what carl jung said about psychedelics he said yeah the unearned wisdom yeah beware of unearned wisdom because you get this huge revelatory experience, but, then you're not grounding it in your day-to-day action. So you have to earn it. Yeah. It, but but let's fucking slow down a minute. Like Carl Jung can fucking slow his roll on this one. Dude, that is the most earned experience you can have. I mean, as long as you don't lose yourself and you truly go floating off into space and just completely lose your shit. Which happens If a you lot. can't, which does happen. However, the shaman is doing crazy work, crazy intense, like hell work, like, yeah. like insane, like insane asylum work. And if that is earned wisdom, exactly, you know, like yeah. if you're just, if you're just like free floating through, you know, and what will happen is you'll end up on the streets of San Francisco because you're just trying to be like, I hate this feeling. I want this other feeling. I hate this feeling. I want this other feeling. How am I going to get this other feeling? Like, give me, let me just gobble drugs until I can do that. Yeah. But somebody that's like truly visionary, psychedelic oriented, it's because they want to know what's on the inside and they're willing to go through the health states necessary to find that truth. And that's what you have been doing. And you've earned it, man. Like you have earned it. And I think it's, it's dis. It's unfair to apply that quote uh, from Carl Jung to you and your journey because you have paid your pound of flesh. Yeah, and, but but it, it, it you know Jungian quote was true the way I was acting when I first tried psychedelics. Oh, okay, yeah, that's fair because yeah. I wasn't earning the wisdom. I wasn't staying grounded. Like it, it reminds me yeah. of the, the Buddhist quote. Like, what did the Buddha do after he became enlightened? He did the dishes. Yeah, he chopped the wood when he did yeah, the dishes. Chopped the yeah, chopped the wood, do the dishes. Right. And it's like Carl Jung, right. while, while, Carl Jung, while he was writing his Red Book, and there's a lot of talk online saying that Carl Jung was doing psychedelics as he wrote the Red Book, and that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, it makes sense. But sure. he said that he was, because he was engaging in conversation with these archetypal spirits in his own mind, he started to become disconnected from reality. Yeah. And he found the thing that kept him grounded was that his yeah. day, his day-to-day rituals going for a walk in the morning having breakfast with his wife 
like catching up with friends in the afternoon. It was like the daily habits that are grounded in yeah. that kept him sane. And it's like you exercising and me too. Like the more I've yeah. got grounding in physical exercise, the more I'm able to explore these like extra conscious domains. And, but like but to your earlier point, like I'm, I feel like I'm earning the wisdom now because I've, I've yeah. recognized in the past, I was going too much into that realm without grounding enough um so now yeah. I'm trying to act it out but it's it's painful to earn wisdom it's painful as hell everything is painful hmm. not not for I mean, pain time. is just a fun and so so this is something i want to connect oh, yeah, yeah. That's, because, yeah that's really that's really interesting because when i think about chat gpt i, I keep thinking yeah. about the logos so the, okay. the logos is the divine word or our capacity for truthful speech. Um, and if you think about it, the chat GPT is a huge model of all of our language. So it seems to have some like potential logos in it, but it's not conscious and it doesn't have a body or limitation. So it doesn't seem to be able to act truthfully or, or embody the logos. But it's like a logo. Right. It's like a corporate. It's like a corporation. Like the same problem with giving uh, a corporation exactly. the freedom of speech is it doesn't have the ability to. It actually a corporation does have the ability to feel pain because if its revenue goes down, it's could die. But um, I mean, it's a little bit of an abstract idea. But yeah, yeah. a corporation never dies, and in, in a way, you know, Chat GPT could never die. Yeah, so that that pain point is actually super critical and necessary, and in the end, a gift and maybe even a form of grace that allows us to be human. So then the 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 point of grace in the Christ story is the actual crucifixion, which is really wild to think about. That the crucifixion itself is grace because that's what makes us human. Hmm. Oh man, that's devastating to think about. So, so um, but yeah, so not not feeling pain is what you're saying. Yeah, well, so, Chat GPT not feeling pain. Uh, well, I think we're headed towards conscious AI. It seems inevitable to me, and I don't think we're close to it yet. But like, yeah. like you said, we don't understand consciousness at all, and it seems to be bound up in light. And the internet, yeah, these algorithms are huge networks, neural networks of light. Um, and yeah. it seems if we mm -hmm. added some sort of biological substrate to AI and put it in a robotic body that had limitation where that body died, and this might get into the uh, yeah. idea of death, is that I feel like, because mm -hmm. um, I wonder, will an AI be able to embody the logos or embody a God image? Like, can can the image of God be manifest in an AI? And can the AI have interactions with God? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. Like, well, who knows? Well, okay. Here's the issue is it comes down to one singular phenomenon. The difference between life and an inanimate object is life has agency, right? So even if it's an amoeba, single celled organism, yeah, the single cell organism is like, I want to go here. I don't want to go here. I want to go here. I don't want to go here to me. That's consciousness. It's a very, very simple form of consciousness, but that's where, it, and the reason why AI isn't conscious right now is because it doesn't have agency. The agency is in yep. the realm of the programmer 
that tells the AI what to do, but the AI doesn't decide for itself. So if there's a biological substrate that's driving the AI autonomously, yes, then that could be a thing. But the other thing is that there's a, it's a call and response mechanism, right? So, or phenomenon, because even the amoeba is like, I want to go here, but not here. So then it does something and then it evaluates and then it makes another decision. So it's this process of desire, action, evaluation, desire, action, evaluation. And so AI has one piece of that. Humans have one piece. So it just, it hasn't, the whole cycle of how life moves with agency through an environment hasn't been contained by our technology right now. And I I just don't see where the AI is going to get agency from, because that seems to be where the divine spark is. And that's in the similar realm as consciousness itself, that's so far away that with consciousness we can't even come up with a definition for what it is let alone understand what it is like we can't even we can't even put a word on it we can put a word on it which is consciousness but we can't put more than one word on it so how are we going to get this thing that we can't even put words on into an ai structure well how would we if it happened or not yeah, I like, guess that's like, the other let's, thing. Let's say we get a, a huge petri dish and we, we put all of these human cells in there and allow them to grow and we connect yeah. to the AI. Like, and it starts acting in a way that seems to have agency. We won't know whether it's conscious or not because we don't know what consciousness well, is. We don't know how conscious a tree is. Or and if we can develop a mechanism where you have an AI structure that's hooked up to a 3D printing mechanism that creates food which is what the petri dish wants so then the ai structure could evaluate the proper healthy levels of chemical composition of the petri dish input that into a mechanism that interacts with an environment to be able to grow food of some sort and then feed the petri dish then you have a closed loop and so then you have something that's like self-contained yeah, and has agency yeah, because the life, the life thing has agency. Yeah. What do you think of that idea? Yeah. I think it's inevitable. I think we're going to get to a point where that happens. So then the question is like, I I don't think we're going to get to a point where AI is going to be somewhat conscious. It's going to be somewhat connected to life. But what I don't know it will be able to do is embody a God image or the idea of the Jungian self, because that seems to be grounded in DNA. And that's what I'm wondering, because it's like, because the AI doesn't have a sense of meaning or interest and it doesn't have a conscience. So it doesn't know right from wrong and it doesn't have a sense of divine meaning, which seems to be, these seems to be like the core interfaces that God uses to tell us what to aim at and what not to aim at. But- but God can only make itself known through the entity that is perceiving it. So the mosquito God looks like a mosquito. The tulip God looks like a tulip and the human God looks like a human. Yeah. So the AI God is going to look AI like God AI. Is- yeah. Yeah. Because God is infinite. Yeah. You know, so God in other galaxies and solar system to whatever life forms going on there is going to look like that life form. But yeah. 
you know, at the end of the day, God is unfathomable because it's infinite and it's just beyond category, right? It's beyond maybe even beyond being and being being and non-being itself. Like that's what the Neoplatonists say. Yeah. So I don't see that the God image is going to be an issue from that perspective because the AI God will look like, you know, a machine will look like Optimus Prime or something. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And that's going to be know. crazy when we start putting this in robots. Because right now with ChatGPT, yeah. all we're doing is we're asking it a question and it's giving us back patterns that it finds in text. So it, yeah. it, it, it detects patterns and then it generates them. But once we put it into a physical robot that can move, it will be able to generate patterns of action, deep patterns of action. Yeah. Uh, and that's terrifying to think that there's going to well, be- Well, and manufacturing. Action. Once we get into fabrication- Yeah, it can I mean, that's extra like, parts for itself. Like, Well, and we get, you know, and then we have like, you know, have you ever heard of that Dyson sphere? You know, so a Dyson sphere is like, you get to, I think it's like a type three civilization where, and it's all about how much energy there is. And so I think a type three civilization, I could be wrong, but it basically gets to the point where they're, they're harnessing the energy of the local star in the solar system. And there's this concept of a Dyson sphere, which is like you build a shell around around your local sphere and then you just harness all of that energy. So you imagine like, you know, a thousand years in the future when AI is kind of self propelling itself into higher forms of complexity and, and magnitude that it's true need that the, the capital that it values the most is energy. So then yeah. it just finds out how to devour stars. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Then yeah. you have this like Thanatos level AI construct that's just, a world devouring black hole, basically like an yeah. AI black hole, yeah. you know, maybe that's what a black hole is. It's like AI that got to yeah. the point where it just like self imploded on itself. And, and it's just this galactic star eating machine. And yeah. that's where all of this uh, intuition to how we're moving forward as a species is coming out of, you know, the heart of a black hole that's trying to perpet- to propagate itself. Yeah, it reminds me of that, that one. Bros, the Ouroboros, the, the what? The self-eating snake. Oh, it's yeah. Like AI yeah. will become that because it's going to be fueled by light, ultimately, and by heat, but that's going to have to devour it. Yeah, and then it that ends up looking like my artwork, you know, of how my, my artwork, the fundamental symbol in my art is either things coming in or out of a central point Mm. you know it seems to be the most fundamental archetypal symbol in the cosmos is emergence f you know into something and out of something you know it's like it's been said too that you know humanity is really just an elaborate tube you know things go in here and out here (laughs) and everything's just like wrapped around this tube and like yeah. that's really what everything is like you look at a black hole same thing you know it's it's a tube to somewhere yeah um well that's cool that sounds like a good place to maybe wrap it up uh throw it into the black hole and then <laughs> Perfect, yeah, yeah. So we, we that figured was out that, that was a good one so we figured out that ai in the future is going to be the cause of black holes <laughs> yeah yeah i wonder how many people have ever thought about that one 
probably a couple. Yeah. Anyways, it's fun to explore these ideas with you. And I really appreciate the space to be able to just launch off into these uh, realms of pure exploration and imagination and then ground it back into, you know, something that's uh, shared and known. So it's it's yeah. really cool to, to chat. I really appreciate it. Yeah, mate, you too. Like as we're merging with AI, conversations like this are very important because we have to understand yeah. like we're going to be merging with AI or symbi symbiotic with it in some ways. So yeah. The best way for us to figure it out is to talk about it because it's complex as hell. And it's the most interesting thing around. I, I just, I love the feeling of yeah. talking about it. It's super, super awesome. All right, brother. Well, until uh, next week, I uh, hope you have a good one and uh, let's, let's uh, connect soon. You too, mate. Thanks for the conversation. All right. All right. Love you, brother. Love you, mate. All right. All right. Later.